Welcome to season one, episode 20 of Grace or Grit. This is a podcast intended to address difficult, controversial, and debatable issues related to the Bible and the church. I'm your host, Dave Talley. I serve as the pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Herlock, Maryland. And once again today, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Patrick Reed. He's a pre-field missionary with ABWE. He's on deputation trying to get to the Gambia in Africa. He also serves on the pastoral staff here with me in Herlock. Good morning, Patrick, or good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm doing good. Just doing some camping here in Delaware, and so having a good time and excited about doing another podcast. Yeah, this is our first podcast from the cab of a truck or the what van or whatever you're in there. So we'll see how the audio goes with that. Um, and then joining Patrick and I, Patrick and me, I guess, today is Pastor Brian Moss. Pastor Brian is the lead pastor of a great church just down the peninsula from us, down in Salisbury, Maryland. I met him through a member of our church, actually, Tom Blades. Um, he wouldn't leave me alone. Every year he was nagging me saying, hey, you got to go to this dream church conference. And, uh, you know, as a pastor, we get a lot of those kind of invitations from people, whatever their pet thing is. And so I kept dismissing it and dismissing it. And then finally I went about, I don't know, four or five years ago. And uh, I have never been the same. So Pastor Brian, welcome to Grace or Grit. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that Tom pestered you. And it's so funny when you said that, because I do think about uh, how many members tell me I've got to read a book. I've got to listen to this podcast. I got to watch this thing. I got to listen to this preacher. <laughs> I was like, man, if I did all the stuff that people were asking, you to look and watch, I'd never be able to be still long enough to know what's going on. So it is funny, but uh, it is also kind of cool because Tom and I think his wife, I think they've gone to every dream conference we've ever had. So those guys, uh, it's it's been cool. So that's a neat that's a neat thing. I'm glad he connected us together. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, and of course, we'll be talking a little bit more about uh, the dream and so forth today. I'm sure. But um, for the sake of our listeners, perhaps some of them won't know you. Uh, maybe all of them will, for all I know. But. Would you mind just taking a few minutes, uh, Pastor Brian, just tell us a little, bit, a little bit about yourself and your ministry, how God brought you to where you are? Well, uh, I grew up in Texas, and so I was the youngest of three boys uh, in uh, growing up in the 70s. And in my household, we were an unchurched household. Uh, my parents believed in God, but it wasn't really an, a normative part of our family life. And so uh, in the 70s, my oldest brother became involved in drugs and pretty soon that trickled down in all three of the boys. And so drugs became a normative part of, uh, of my story. And so as a young kid, uh, I got involved with that pretty young. And uh, so it started uh, kind of shaping who I was as a, as a very young teenager, very young teenager. That <laughs> started, uh, in fact, the first time I started smoking a pot was in about fourth grade. And so that was kind of my story because I had these older brothers. And so um, by the time I reached middle school, uh, my life was just a wreck, uh, to be honest. I, I, really didn't, I really didn't know where I was heading. And I, I definitely sensed an emptiness, uh, but I didn't know how to fix it. Uh, around the eighth grade, uh, in fact, it was the summer between my eighth and my ninth grade, my mother joined uh, a 12, classic 12-step program that was for parents. And uh, she didn't, you know, she was really doing that because she was just at the end of a rope uh, with three kids that were involved with uh, drugs. And uh, she came home and I noticed a, a visible, tangible difference. She invited me to try to be a part of that uh, group uh, with the, with the uh, you know, for the kids part. And uh, I was like, wow, uh, you know, sure, just to get her off my back, I'll, I'll try that out. And uh, when I was there, of course, they challenged me and got my face a little bit. And uh, I said, I can do this. And so, uh, you know, I, I accepted the challenge to, you know, to stay clean. And uh, as, as I'm sure you're aware, almost every 12-step program uh, is heavily immersed in both uh, uh, the ideology of God, who God is. Uh, even when they're non-sectarian, they're still very God-centric. And... Uh, uh, 
you know, and secondarily, they were built upon a lot of a lot of uh, Bible nuances, even, you know, even the ones that are secular 12 step. So there's a lot of spirituality involved in it. And so they challenged me uh, to connect with God, which um, put me on a journey of like, you know, well, hadn't thought about that. So who is that? And uh, as a young teenager, uh, I, I kind of went back to a memory of my grandmother who had died uh, when I was when I was younger, but had taught me about the Bible uh, when I would stay the night with her, which frankly was very, very few and far between. But she'd teach me about scripture. And I remember she made me uh, memorize this Bible verse, which suddenly popped in my head, John 3.16. And uh, out of nowhere, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but out of nowhere, uh, that popped in my head. And I was like, wow, uh, I need that. And so I got on my knees as a 15-year-old kid in my bedroom by myself, and I literally prayed John 3.16 back to God. And on that night, uh, my life was radically transformed and uh, set me on a trajectory of, of Christianity. Uh, original, initially, I didn't know that church was such a, you know important part. I thought church was like, you know, kind of an optional thing, you know, I'm like, you know, good Christians would do that. Like if you got time and you know, and all that, but uh, I didn't, re- I didn't realize actually as a new believer, as a 15 year old, that that was going to become a critical component. So I went to church some, but I didn't make it a priority and uh, I got burned by church. So the very first church experience, um, I literally had a, a, uh, a mom of one of the, of one of the students that I was starting to befriend at this church uh, approached me and she knew my reputation as, you know, a, a drug user and that kind of stuff. She knew that part of me. Uh, I still had long hair. I wore a leather jacket. I wore dingo boots. I looked like a thug, and, but I was born again. I was, a, I was a brand new believer. And she literally approached me and asked, asked me to no longer be uh, involved with her son. Uh, she, she uninvited me from uh, her son's life. And uh, it was just wounding. I was like, wow, man, I'm on this journey trying to become a believer. And, uh, you know, I was, it made it difficult for me. So I really did that, that shaped a little bit of how I viewed church from the early, you know, early uh, formation of like, wow, churches ought to be places, you know, that, help people who are in the transition of, you know, learning to become, but, uh, but I didn't wrestle with it a lot. I just didn't go. I was like, okay, I, you know, church is not a big deal, but my journey really went into a tailspin for a while. As, I, as, as we all know, sitting here that, uh, you just can't do it without, without community. And eventually I, I came to a point where I was like, man, my life is just kind of spinning out of control. I need to get back in church, and God led me to this amazing church uh, in Tulsa. At this time, I was, uh, I'd already started my career as a computer engineer. Um, my life was really kind of like, man, I need to get back on track with God. I knew it, uh, and even in those years that I was kind of not living for God, I never, I never lived in rebellion to God. I mean, I, I just wasn't connected, and so uh, I visited this church, and man, this church was, uh, was on fire for God. They had a large singles ministry there, which as you know, is extremely unusual. Um, And that's where I met my wife and that's where God called me in a ministry. And uh, when God called me in the ministry, that kind of rocked my world because not growing up in a church, um, I did, first of all, I didn't know what it meant to be completely honest. I I really, uh, as an engineer, when God first called me in a ministry, I thought, oh, well, that must mean go to missions, right? Because like, surely somebody needs computer help in Africa. (laughs) So, I mean, I really couldn't tangibly understand like, what did that mean? But, but then God's calling on me was very, very specific. And he narrowed it down into a sense of like, no, your calling is into preaching ministry. It is in uh, North America that, and to pastor and lead a church. And uh, I think God knew that I, I just needed that kind of clarity. Um, but I didn't know what it meant. So for a long time, I just mentored. I, I went to great churches, not many, but a few great churches. I try to get underneath the mentorship of the pastor and try to, you know, I would meet with them and say, look, God, God called me to this thing, but I don't know what it means. And I finally met with a great pastor in Tulsa uh, that I still consider my pastor to this day. We still keep in touch. Uh, but he just looked me in the eye and he said, son, you just, I can sense it in your, in your life. 
you need to go to seminary. And so I was like, man, I trusted Brother Bill, uh, my pastor. And I'm like, well, if that's what he says, that's what I'm going to do. I quit my job as an engineer. By this time, I had a wife and, and uh, my first child and moved my family to Fort Worth, Texas. I was in Tulsa, so I moved to Fort Worth and uh, uh, went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, kind of started over in my education pathway. Um, and then uh, uh, close to the end of seminary is when I began to question what route my ministry would take. And the reason it did that is because I felt a strong, strong calling uh, towards um, outside the Bible Belt. And I just felt a sense of, man, I've got this fantastic career as, a, as an engineer. I worked all the way through seminary and it's portable. Telecommunications was just beginning on the, on the, just beginning on the edge. Uh, and I was already telecommuting from uh, my, my, uh, my work was in uh, Northern California was my immediate supervisor but I was living in Texas, so all of the things I was doing was already remote and virtual. So I was like, man, why not, why not go to a church that other pastors just can't go to? And so I closed the door on the Bible Belt and just said, I'm not going to the Bible Belt. I, I want to go outside of the Bible Belt, and I want to go to a church that maybe can't afford you know, a full-time pastor. So that narrowed the field. <laughs> and yeah, this... This church contacted me from Salisbury, Maryland. And when they first contacted me, I was like, where's that? (laughs) And being from Texas, I was like, that's a, that's a state. You know, I I was like, this is only this big. How could that be? But uh, uh, I did, I got on a plane and I flew out here and uh, that was in August of 1999. Um, The church was uh, at the time, I didn't know it all, but uh, they were, they were so strapped at that point, that they first initially asked to just see me and not me and my wife. And let me just tell you, uh, that didn't go over real well at home. I bet. <laughs> so, so my wife really didn't like that, but I sensed, I really did sense strongly that, that, that I needed to at least go. I, I didn't know why, but I just felt like, uh, I feel like God wants me to at least check this out. So I didn't really honestly know why. Got on a plane, um, came here, and of course they take had to take a you know puddle jumper. I didn't I, first time I'd ever been in a prop plane. <laughs> and when the plane landed in the Salisbury Airport, as the wheels touched down, I heard the Holy Spirit say, "Welcome home." Mm. Now, now I can tell you, I'm a Baptist, okay? Mm-hmm. So I can count on one hand the number of times I've heard the Holy Spirit speak with that kind of clarity. It, it's not often. Now, I know how many times I wish he would, you know, which is hundreds of times, especially in a pandemic. But it was that clear. And it was just so weird, David. I, I remember thinking, you know, an absolute peace that I, I just was 100% clear God was calling us there. And so it was a done deal in my mind. The, the interviews and, the, and everything else was a formality uh, for me. <laughs> what yeah. for them? <laughs> but uh, we did. They ended up extending the call. We came, uh, moved here 21 years ago. And uh, when I first arrived at the church, I didn't know, honestly, uh, I had a seminary education, but I really didn't know how to lead a church. I, I, I really was out of my league. I didn't know exactly what to do or how to do it. I knew, here's what I did know. I had been in churches long enough to know how to do church the way it's always been done. That much I knew how to do. I knew that we had some deacons and I knew that we had business meetings and I knew that somebody cared about Robert's rule of order, you know, and I knew, you know, I knew that we had a choir and we had a Wednesday night meal and, and we had all that stuff, even though when I got here, the church only had 30 people. And so we started over from, from scratch. And uh, I won't go into the long story because we do that in a dream conference but God gave us a framework and a purpose-driven model. Thank goodness this was in the earliest days of purpose-driven 
before Facebook didn't exist, Instagram didn't exist, Twitter didn't exist, none of that existed. So you didn't have as much of the nonsense factor around the cult of Rick Warren. Uh, that just didn't exist back then. Uh, Rick was a born and bred Southern Baptist. He's as he's you know it's four generations of Southern Baptist. So no, nobody had all these weird thoughts that he was some sort of sellout and all that kind of stuff. Right. He was really highlighted as a great uh, as a church planter that it had success. And now I had an added advantage that some do not. I had been on a business trip to Los Angeles. And I tried to, well, it was a business trip. So I, I was trying to catch, I, I used to, on my business trips, I wanted to go to great churches and just hear people. I tried to go see Chuck Swindoll because he was out there at that time. And I called the church and they said, yeah, he's out this weekend. <laughs> and I was like, ah, and I said, man, I, I'm only here this one weekend. And she said, well, the lady at, the, at his church said, well, I tell you what, you should go check out Saddleback Church. And I wow. said, why is that? And she said, oh, it's just a great church. They're doing great things. And uh, you should just check it out. And I was like, sweet. So that's, I'd actually already been to Saddleback and seen how they did church before all the, you know, before all the roar of, you know, oh, this is what they do. So I already kind of knew what they were. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is the gospel. I mean, it, it was different packaging, but it was still the gospel. And uh, so we, we, we decided we're going to become a purpose-driven church. And, and we went on a journey over the next five years, and it took about seven, of transitioning our methodology of the church towards a more purpose-driven model. And what we saw uh, at least for us over those seven years, is that we just saw incredible fruit. Uh, we saw hundreds of people giving their lives to Christ. We, we saw the launch of dozens of ministries, mostly centered around the hurting and the broken, recovery ministries and counseling ministries and uh, teen recovery and uh, homeless ministry. And so uh, we, just, we just saw that it, this stuff just works. And the reason it worked it's because it's grounded in biblical uh, principles. So we just started, you know, implementing each of the five purposes into the church systematically, slowly, and systematically making changes and tweaks to the way we did things to, to become more effective. And that's the bottom line. How do we get, how do we accomplish what God wants churches to do, but how do we accomplish it in the most effective way? And at the driving seat of every single thing we did, uh, for me, and it's how I'm gifted, and it's how I'm wired, but, but at the center of everything was, is this going to increase our effectiveness at the Great Commission or not? And we evaluated every program, frankly, ruthlessly evaluated everything we did in the, in the scope of is this evangelistically effective? And so there were many things that we started over the years stripping off. And, and, and eventually, as we saw God bring so much fruit, not before, we had built enough credibility where we, we started slaying sacred cows. You know, we just mm -hmm. found that, man, the best thing a sacred cow is good for is a sacred hamburger. <laughs> you know, we just said, we're just going to kill it all. And, and, we stopped doing VBS. We stopped doing our fall festival program. We stopped. Now we stopped. I say, the truth is we transitioned. We decided, okay, what's good. And I'll give one example and then I'll shut up and let you ask me some questions. We said, what's good about VBS. And then we just wrote down all the, the good things. Uh, and knowing historically why VBS was created, it was created with an evangelistic heart. So we said, okay, um, knowing now what it's become and morphed into, which is basically a childcare solution for all the Christian parents of a certain region. You know? yep. I literally had a lady come up to me at one service. She said, pastor, when's your VBS? And I said, we're not doing one. She got this, you know, she got the sad face and she said, well, my refrigerator has already scheduled every VBS of every church in town. And I just had one hole and I was really hoping <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. So we, we decided 
what what was great about VBS, and it is phenomenal, what would happen if we ran VBS 52 times a year? Like, what mm-hmm. would that be like? And that's where we decided to do. We decided that let's transition our Sunday morning program to be so much like a VBS that we see conversions out of it all the time. Like that becomes the norm instead of a once a year, one week a year kind of thing. So, so that's fundamentally what we did. That's the journey. So we've been doing that journey now for 21 years uh, at Oak Ridge. And we've just seen God do some really, really cool things over the years. And the other thing I would say is that we've had to, we've had to reevaluate almost every change we made back then. We've had to reevaluate about every five years because I've found that methods, when you, when you implement a method, methods are culturally relevant. I mean, we're, we're communicating right now with a method. And I think every church, thankfully, thank God, one of the good things of pandemic is pandemic has forced every church in America to realize that technology is your friend, not your enemy. Right. And, and it's a tool that can be used for God's glory. So, you know, the truth is uh, everything you're doing and every tool you're using today will be out of date within a matter of years. So to be effective as a church we didn't, we never compromise the message. The message must never change, but we must constantly change the methods because the methods serve the mission. Uh, I, I tweeted this morning, uh, the great commission is not condition, contingent on great conditions. Mm-hmm. So just because there's a pandemic does not mean Jesus says, Hey guys, let's all pause the great mission. <laughs> let's, right. let's all just say, well, we'll wait a little while, lock it down. And when everybody feels safe, they can be saved again. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's insanity. So what do we do in a lockdown church? Well, we, we change methods. So, so that's a little bit of my story. And I'm, I know it's haphazard and all over the, the map, but that's a little taste of, of our journey. Well, and many parts there I had not heard. So uh, I was thrilled to hear that. I'm always thrilled to hear the testimonies of how God has worked in people's lives. There are things obviously in life and in ministry that I get weary of. I guess all of us do. It becomes drudgery to try to get it done, but I never get tired. I seriously never get tired of hearing people tell their story of how God has brought them to the place they are. Well, the title of our discussion today, um, if you haven't already figured out as a, as a listener is evangelism. Um, I entitled it Attractional Versus Missional Evangelism, and I liked uh, the response when uh, Pastor Brian sent me his response. He said, yes, I'll be happy to talk with you about Invitational Versus Missional <laughs> Evangelism, So, uh, and I, I picked up on that. It's great stuff right there, but uh, we are going to talk about evangelism a little bit today. I want to give you just a little piece of, of my background. All my life, I have had the importance of evangelism pounded into my head, into my heart, and into my habits. Independent, fundamental, Baptist, Thursday night visitation, knocking on doors, inviting people to church, passing out tracts, uh, systematic surveys, uh, soul winning evangelism. Uh, and at times, I've seen what I consider to be some success in, uh, like I said, what old timers called soul winning. But I have always struggled. Um, I don't know how many doors I've knocked on, but my guess is it's hundreds. I may have even knocked on more than a thousand doors in my life. I started when I was a young teenager um, in our youth group. Um, but I admit that there's a lot of struggles. I hate knocking on doors. I don't, I don't know that a lot of people love knocking on doors, but I know that I hate it. Uh, I don't like talking to strangers. Um, I fear because of my own experience with making multiple, multiple professions of faith and my experience of seeing people profess faith in Christ and there being no life change. Uh, I fear false professions. I feel some, I fear some kind of high pressure salesmanship evangelism um, that might uh, cause someone to think, Oh, now I'm a Christian when the spirit was not involved and there was no understanding of the gospel. Um, so that's something that I've struggled with. 
And just to be real frank, and this is probably too transparent, but I like people to leave me alone. So I figure they want me to leave them, leave them alone, you know. So all those things work against me, I think. Um, and I, I, I have wondered since I was probably 12, 13, 14 years old, is there not a, a easier way to do this? Is there not some kind of natural way where people don't feel so awkward? Can we fulfill the great commission without being weird? You know, it's yeah. kind of something that's uh, eaten me up and there's certainly some other excuses. So early on in my ministry, um, my pastor, Dr. T Reynolds Hall said, you need to read Charles Haddon Spurgeon's book lectures to my students. And I did read it very carefully, very patiently, very seriously. And I don't remember much of what I read, but I remember one particular thing that he said. He said, if the man of God is on fire for God, the community will come out to watch him burn. And I thought, there's the answer. That's, that's something that can be done without being weird, <laughs> without being awkward. Uh, and the people who come, they clearly come voluntarily, so they... <coughs> They kind of have bought into the fact that this guy's going to preach here, you know. So I just kind of said, that's, you know, that's what I need to do. So I need to preach the truth. I kind of picked up a motto early in my ministry. I want to preach the truth of God's word so well with true spiritual power, with honest zeal, with sincere affection, affection for God, affection for his people, and affection for sinners, that people in the congregation will be so energized and so motivated that they will invite their friends, their neighbors, their family, to the assembly and I won't have to do the dirty work. Okay. That's, I'm just being honest with you. That was kind of uh, where, where I went with it. So. Um, well, you're saying, you're saying what, what many pastors won't say, you know, they won't say what they're actually feeling and thinking. And most pastors are not transparent about the, you know, what's behind their methodology and you're just being honest. In fact, I would say that you're probably, being quite representative of most pastors. Most pastors um, would probably say, yeah, I, I totally am on board with what you're saying. And when I came here, Pastor Brian, uh, the first, because I'm like, you know, this is the way you do it. You knock on doors. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. So I was like, well, I, I, I'm out of my league. That's, I remember kneeling right here, two feet from where I'm sitting right now. The first Sunday morning I walked into this church, kneeling on this, we have a mourner's bench up here, kneeling on it and saying, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. If you don't help me, this is going to fall apart. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was like, well, I got to do the thing that I hate most because surely that's what God will bless, right? So I got out week by week. And for about three years, I went through the town, invited people to church, tried to give the gospel. Two people in the entire town out of all those visits admitted that they were not Christians. Two people. And as far as I know, zero ever came to the church as a result of those visits. Yeah. So, I mean, I was like striking out. Now, God was sending other people, you know, and there were other things happening. But uh, it, was, it was just, it was painful. And trying to get the church members to come out. Uh, I mean, I've had people in tears just standing in the church, thinking about walking out and knocking on somebody's door and asking if they're oh, going yeah. to heaven or hell. I mean, people with such anxiety that I was like, why in the world am I putting them through this, you know? So let's get right to the heart of the matter. Is it attractional, invitational, as you called it? Is it missional? Is it both? In other words, do we have to go, go, go? Or can we shine so brightly that they'll come automatically? Or is it neither? Is it both? What do you think? Well, one of the reasons that I responded to you in, in just saying invitational, you know, and, and missional and kind of doing it that way and trying to, you know, talk about that way is because um, I actually heard a podcast uh, by a denominational leader on the topic attractional versus missional. And I thought, oh, that's right up my alley. So I said, man, I'm going to listen to that. And I listen. And uh, he, he failed. In fact, it was kind of humorous because he said attractional. He said, that's a, uh, that's by that pastor, I think, uh, uh, Saddleback. And he, he didn't even know the name. Okay. So I was like, Oh my gosh. But then when he, when he decided to go ahead and define terms, this is how he defined attractional. He said attractional evangelism. He thinks he's quoting Rick. He says attractional evangelism is where I make the programs of my church so much better than the programs of your church that the people want to come to my church. Uh. 
I guess not even evangelism. So, <laughs> so and that's the opposite of what you're trying to do there. You want everybody except those that are in other churches. Yeah. So I think that it's fair for us to also be sure that and clear to everyone to say, we are talking about evangelism. We are talking about uh, reaching people who are far from God, who are not believers in Jesus Christ, who are not connected to a church. We want to reach the unreached. And so I just want to be crystal clear. That's what we're talking about. Now, to reach the unreached, the people who are not reached for Christ, um, that's our starting point. That's the starting point. So we, so in our demographic, we'd almost, we call it, you know, in the concentric circle, we start there. And in our concentric circle diagram, we call it the community. And we say, we want to reach those in the community who are currently unreached. And so that's clarity of target. Now, how I reach them, that's the differentiation. And so uh, attractional evangelism by definition is creating the kind of environment in a church that would be attractive to that target. That person would be able to feel like I, that church has something I need. And when someone invites me to come, I would actually experience the gospel in that church. And I, I would not be, and is the opposite of repelled. <laughs> And if I can just be very frank, most, uh, I would say probably upwards of, I'm going to be generous, 95% of the churches in North America. If an, if a lost person went into that church, they would have more repelling factors than attractive attractional factors. So that's, I'm just giving definitions first that attractional church, uh, looks at evangelism as using the church as an evangelistic tool so that lost people would both want to come, attend, and be converted through that invite. Uh, the opposite, or missional evangelism, is actually what those 95% of churches do. Now, many of them don't, they don't say it. Uh, in fact, let me, I'm going to back up. They don't even do it. The 95% would say that evangelism is what occurs outside the church. It's, it's when uh, saved members, obedient to the Great Commission, share their faith out in the common world in, in those connections. They share their faith and people come to Christ. And, and, that, and that's missional evangelism. So those two, you know, those two, I want to make sure we're clear on those two definitions because they're only two methods, but they're, but I think you would agree with me. There's, they're clearly not the only two. It's that's two, but they're not the only two. There's, there's tons of other evangelistic tools and methodologies we use to reach people for Christ. So there's, you know, the Billy Graham crusades, you know, and there's, uh, you know, there's track ministry, there's, you know, and now the internet and, you know, and all, there's a lot of tools, but when it comes to what will a, what will a pastor of a church, how will I, how will I as a senior pastor reach people in my community for Jesus? That's the question every senior pastor ultimately asks, how will I reach the people where God has planted me? And I would, I, you know, a little bit about my background, I was classically trained. Now, I'm the opposite of you, David. I live for those conversations. I love those conversations. So I was trained in uh, uh, Evangelism Explosion. I was actually trained by D. James Kennedy and, and did the actual visitation there in Florida with his team. So I was trained as an EE guy, certified training. And, and then I did the Southern Baptist. You know, that's where we stole Kennedy's program, and we, we relabeled it, they literally did, and relabeled it, and we called it uh, CWT, Continue Witness Training, and it literally was EE converted to be a Southern Baptist, so, you know, instead of a Presbyterian, and so I, I was CWT trained, so I, I had both of those, so I was the cold call 
junkie. Man, I could do that in my sleep. I, I had the whole program memorized. I, I did the house to house call. I did all that. So when I came to Oak Ridge, uh, that was my assumption was that I would actually create a visitation program, whether it was Monday night or Tuesday or whenever that was. And I would, you know, do, do uh, calls on anyone who visited and cold calls on neighbors and all that kind of stuff. So I had all that training. What I found pretty fast was a culture shock. So I came from the Bible Belt in the South and I came here and, and this, and, I, and I'm not making this up. This was my common experience when I did a visit. Think about this. This guy just visited my church on Sunday. I visited him on a Monday night. I, I come to the house, knock, knock, knock. I'm like, uh, hey, I'm Pastor Brown. What do you want? Well, hey, man, you just, you know, you visited a church, and I knew all the pet phrases. Hey, you came and visited us, and I thought I'd return the favor and visit you, and da-da-da. You know, I did. I knew all that junk. And uh, they said, yeah, it's not a good time. <laughs> and, and I literally found over and over again that they didn't want to visit. Yeah. They, they, that was not of interest to them. And so I really kind of had to sit back and kind of scratch my head. And I'm ashamed to tell you some of the dark secrets of, of uh, Oak Ridge that we don't talk about a whole lot is that I tried forcibly to start a visitation witness program in this church three times and failed miserably. Hmm. It, it was not working. And here's what also is uh, I'm ashamed to say the third time that I tried to initiate a visitation program. We were running about 700. We were getting, you know, we were probably getting at that time, maybe 15, 20 uh, guest cards per week. And, and so I had plenty of fodder. I'm like, I can, you know, create teams and all this. I created all these teams and I took a guy from our church who was one of our deacons and I said, hey man, I'm gonna have you do this. So I attended uh, an EE clinic with him. And then I wanted to inaugurate him. You know, I'm going to, you know, man, I'm, you're ordained and I'm going to lay hands on you. You're the man and we're going to do this visitation. And uh, man, that program just died miserably. And I remember sitting in my office and I'm like, Lord, what am I doing wrong? I was literally writing a new course for evangelism training. I said, Lord, am I doing wrong? <laughs> and uh, again, it was like the Holy Spirit just kind of laughed at me and said, what makes you think you're not doing it now? And I was like, well, what do you mean, Lord? By that point, we had already baptized over 500 people and led them to Jesus Christ. And because I was so programmed in my brain that we're not doing evangelism until we're doing this visitation thing, I couldn't, I couldn't even figure out that we were getting it done <laughs> with the way that we were doing Purpose Driven. It was really kind of sadly humorous that I could not figure out that we were actually getting the job done. So, so here's what I would say. Number one is that um, they're not a either or, they're a both and. So that's the bottom line answer. Number one, there should not be any church in America that is not attractive to the lost. And, and just by me saying that, there'll be a lot of people that would basically call me a heretic because there's two views of church. There's a view that says churches should just be a place for the already found. Yeah. And it should be kept pure and holy and you shouldn't want people who are far from God. And, you know, the second kind, the second kind of church is a church that just... Uh, uh, would say, no, the church can be used. Clearly, we won't save people in our church, but the church can be used evangelistically. It, the church can be a place where the loss can be found. And so, obviously, I fall on that second camp. And so, I believe that you can make the church incredibly attractional without compromising the gospel even one bit, not even, not one bit. You can make 
uh, it incredibly attractive because, and the reason I know this, first of all, because we've done it, but it is because I do believe, and I know every Christian believes this, I do believe that um, the church has what people need the most. They, they just don't know it. Like, like, we know that. We know that the church is the hope of the world. We know that the church will solve their deepest problem, but they don't know that. Uh, we know their biggest problem is they're separated from God. But they think their deepest problem is, I can't pay my bills. Right. Well, would you, would you agree with me? If I can't pay my bills, that's a pretty serious problem. It is. I mean, who would not agree with that? So we know from, from the life and teaching of Jesus, the story of the Good Samaritan, that we know that the gospel should include elements that meet real need in order to... So the quote that we use around here is that we use, uh, we meet felt needs to address faith needs. The felt need is I'm broke. <laughs> I'm broke as a joke and I need money, you know? The faith need is your money is a symptom of your heart. Jesus couldn't have been more clear right? You can't have two masters. So we know that, that, the, that there is a heart issue, even as it's expressed as the money issue. We know that. The Bible is crystal clear that how I handle my money is an expression of my belief about money. And we know that money has a whole uh, theology around money and what God says about how I should do that and all of that. And so, what we don't know, what we're not good at at church is recognizing to meet the felt need before the faith need. When, when Jesus operated in his ministry, he, he followed the same model all the way around Palestine. He went into a town. He healed the sick. That's a felt need. He drew a crowd. And then he offered change. He did that same model everywhere he went. He, he did the same thing even in the call of the disciples. You know, they're like, what's this dude about? Well, I don't know. Come and see. That's a, that's a clear offer that says, if you want more, you've got to make a decision and a commitment. And, and that will move you. Commitments move you towards change. So we use systems in the church that are attractive to people outside the church to meet their felt needs. Number two, we, we know that the Great Commission is obligated to every Christian. And I don't think most Christians know that. They mm -hmm. think that the Great Commission was something given to an institution. But the right. institution did not exist for 300 years before uh, the church. So it was just human beings. So the Great Commission was you. It's not pastors. It's not missionaries. Sorry, Patrick. It's, <laughs> it's ordinary Christians. And so every Christian is obligated. They're not off the hook. Obligated to take the gospel to their ordinary life. So that we call that missional. So you, know, you and I know that the word missions doesn't exist in the Bible. Right. Exists in our denominations. It, it exists in a lot of programming, but there's no such thing as missions. Even Paul's mission trips are just headers added by man. You know, there's, right. He didn't go on mission trips. He went on evangelistic journeys. Right. And those evangelistic journeys involved taking the gospel to new people. He said, I would rather take the gospel where it's never been heard taking the gospel new people, he planted the church, he established elders, and he moved on. So that's evangelism is the call of Christianity, every Christian. Now, the beautiful thing is that evangelism is best communicated within the context of relationships. Hmm. And one thing you and I both know is that relationships, in order for relationship to work, a relationship requires trust. In order for trust to, to be established within a relationship, 
uh, I have to, I have to, you know, it's a give and take. I cannot, if I violate the trust principle, I violate the relationship and I've lost my ability to speak to someone. What, what I believe the gospel was meant to do was to be communicated through organic, natural relationships. There's no such thing as cold call evangelism in the New Testament. It didn't exist. You won't find cold call evangelism. You, you, will, find, you will find organic relationships. That's why Western, Christian, Western Christians uh, don't understand when they read the book of Acts how, how did a whole household get saved? You know, because he'd say, you know, you and your household, and like an entire household would, would come to faith in Christ. And so for us as Westerners, like, wait a minute, I, you know, we're all individuals. And, you know, just because he did, I'm not, you know, we don't comprehend the network of relationships there. If, if dad came to Jesus, his network of relationships within that household, it spilled out and impacted everyone else that, in that household. Christianity was built through organic relationship networks. There were very few cold call. And even what we consider cold call in the, in the New Testament where like Paul would meet, you know, uh, someone at the river or something, still weren't totally cold call. They still weren't. There's still some network fabric of relationship. The reason Paul was a, such a great missionary, quote unquote, is because he had elements of each of the cultures. He was almost a tri-cultural person. He, he, had a, he had a Hebrew culture. He had a Greek culture because of Hellenism in that area. And he had a Roman culture. He was a Roman citizen. So he's a tri-cultured missionary. He had a, a speaking point on all three platforms of relational connection to people. So I would say that using normative relationships to spread the gospel is the most powerful way that we can communicate the gospel. And if we as a church can do that, where we equip our people to use their ordinary relationships to build bridges for the gospel, that's the most effective evangelism program you can ever do. In fact, it's the program that you don't have to program. Now, if you think about, okay, if, if, if I'm going to mobilize the members to use their ordinary relationships as bridges for the gospel, what is the most natural, the, the most natural, the simplest way for that person to harness the organic relationship? Invitationalism. Now, there's a caveat, and you know this is true. The only way invitational evangelism works, and I'm, I'm using it as a synonym for attractional, the only way it works is if the church is a safe place for lost people. Yeah. If the, if the church is not, you don't even have that method available. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even exist for you. I know some would argue with me on that point, you know, like, well, you're cutting out the Holy Spirit and all that. Well, uh, you know, I, okay, I agree. I agree. The Holy Spirit has to be involved in conversion, but for some reason, less conversions are occurring in churches who refuse to change their methodology. Right. So, so that's kind of my nutshell. (laughs) What are your thoughts? Well, I want to know from Patrick's perspective, because he's trying to, you know, set a plan and, and uh, cast a vision and get some strategies as he, as he moves into the Gambia. Um, is, it, is it come and see? Is it go and tell? Is it uh, both? What, what's, your, what's your primary strategy in, in trying to reach the, the Wolof people in the Gambia? Well, I don't really divide things, I guess, the way that the way that it's been divided here. You know, I think I agree with Brian when he says it's relationships and really how should evangelism work? Well, it should work through relationships, regardless of the methods that you use. I don't know any missionaries going around knocking on doors and cold calling. Like that's just not, it doesn't work. You know, you can't just go to another country, start knocking on doors and just uh, asking them, 
you know, are you 100% sure whether you're going to go to heaven or not today? And give them the gospel right then and there. That's just not the way. It's not natural. It's uncomfortable. And you'll probably get thrown out of the country by doing that, to be honest with you, depending on where you're at. Um, and so I don't understand why in the world we do it here in our own country. It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> well, and, and the culture and the culture I grew up in, uh, because there was a lot of legalism, the fact that it was so hard and and ran against the grain so much, then it has to be the right thing to do, right? So since it's the thing you really don't want to do, that must be the thing that God wants you to do. So that at least that was my interpretation of the driving force behind it. And we did see results. Okay, but the results from a cold call, and I could give you names. Will Kindred is one of the guys that came to Christ that I visited, but it didn't happen the first time. It didn't happen the second time. It didn't happen third. In other words, there was a cold call initially, but I was so burdened for him, I went back, and then I went back, and then I went back, and after four or five times, he came to church and made a profession of faith in church. All he did with me at his house was argue with me every time, right? <laughs> so, so when it, when it became a relationship, as both of you have just said, that's when suddenly they begin to say, well, you know, maybe this crazy redheaded kid from this church actually cares about me. Maybe I'll listen to what he has to say, you know, so, but it took time. Yeah. Right. So I think, I think, you know, you have to, you've got to spend the time to build those relationships and you know, it doesn't, to me, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. And I think you got to work within the culture to find out what those ways are. Um, as for as for the church and how should the church accomplish that? I mean, I think the church is the members of the church. It's the people who belong to the church, the people who are going there. And so they have relationships with people. They're in places where certainly the pastor is not going to ever build relationships with people. You know, they've got secular jobs or out in the workforce. They spend probably more time with those people they're working with than they do their own family many times, particularly with, uh, you know, the way things are today. And um, I think the gospel just naturally comes through those relationships. Now, whether whether that turns into an invitation to church or whether it turns into them personally giving them the gospel, I, to me, it doesn't matter. You know, I think both of those would be great. Uh, I would like to see, you know, uh, stronger and stronger discipleship in the churches so that more and more people feel comfortable to give the gospel themselves. So, you know, maybe a easy way to get into evangelism is go out and invite your friends to come into church. But then over time, as you grow and, um, you know, gain more knowledge, you should be given the gospel yourself as well. You know, so I think, I think both of those things can continue to work um, and, and grow the church really successfully because, uh, it's just a it's a natural way to do it. It's not uncomfortable and it shouldn't be anything that, you know, most folks are really uncomfortable with, except for maybe the the most um, introverted people out there. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me give a couple of more a couple of extra caveats to, for attractional evangelism for it to actually be evangelism for that to work. A, the church has to, you know, become a place that's safe for lost people. But, a, but two more components must exist. When my members invite these people and they start coming to church, they better hear the gospel. So, so that means I better make sure that my, pro, my preaching regimen includes regular systematic intervals of a clear gospel presentation and invitation. I must do that. So that creates the not only a good attractional environment, but a place where, where we can, you know, close the deal. So the person can really hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. And, and then third, in a purpose-driven church, uh, we, we use a system, a very clear process of saying uh, every single person coming into the church is moved to attend our first base class. And in the first base class, I get to have a private presentation of the gospel with every single person who ever comes into this church. So, so there's a lot of, there's a lot, they're getting the gospel from a lot of angles. There's a lot happening there. And, and there's a, there's a, it increases a super high probability that if a person begins attending 
an attractional gospel uh, oriented church, there's a super high probability they're going to come to Christ. If the Holy Spirit is doing his thing and he's actually, he or she is the person who's genuinely seeking, it's almost impossible for the person not to get saved in an attractional environment. But on the flip side, and I'm going to go with what you just said, Patrick, churches are required to equip their people to be gospel carriers. They, we have to know at the end of the day that I feel confident that I've properly equipped my people to have gospel conversations at home or at work or at school to seal the deal when, when the opportunity is ripe, when it's right before them. And their friend is literally saying, man, I'm, I'd like to give my life to God. I just don't know how. <laughs> and it's, it's right. Like right there. So we want to make sure we're doing that as well. Now, th- those are gospel centric, but I'm going to go one more step if you'll let me. Sure. Attractional evangelism and missional evangelism, those are the two. That's attractional is uh, this environment is so gospel centric, gospel saturated and safe for a lost person that that we're creating a great gospel engine. Missional, we're mobilizing people with the, with the gospel and the ability to effectively communicate the gospel and lead a person to Christ on their own. But there's one more thing about missional evangelism. And if you listen to most podcasts or if you watch and read articles about missional evangelism, it's really a misnomer. 90% of what we're labeling as missional evangelism today out there is actually pre-evangelism. And, and there is a huge difference, and I'm a huge fan of pre-evangelism. In the 70s, many churches also considered, you know, community out there missional evangelism, but they, they viewed it through the lens of crusades. They, they viewed it through the lens of a hard sell or, you know, a, a cold call and and so those were, those were different kinds of strategies. Most of what we do today in, in missional evangelism is really pre-evangelism. And that is serving the community without an agenda. And the reason that's so important is because people exist, at least in America, people exist in an environment where they're, they're sniffing out what's your angle. Mm-hmm. They really are highly suspicious, highly skeptical of the of the church, highly skeptical of Christians, um, and really believe that that they're just waiting. You know, they're waiting for it to drop. You know that that you're gonna you're you're a bait and switch. You don't really care about blah blah blah. So I would say the whole movement um, of servant evangelism. Um, the whole movement of uh, community, uh, serving your community, random acts of kindness, these kind of things, I think should be on the evangelism menu. Sure. And I know for the early church, it clearly was. For the early church, uh, they responded to the crises around them. Probably the most beautiful example is how the uh, church in Ephesus uh, where the temple of Diana was, and there, you know, they had temple prostitutes that were running this thing 24 hours a day. Well, when a prostitute got pregnant, she got out of the game for a little while. And what they would normally do with those pregnancies, you know, they weren't doing abortion; they would do, uh, you know, murdering the baby post, you know, post uh, delivery. Yeah, delivery. And so the Christians were like, "Wait a minute, uh, that's human life; it's sacred to God." And so they were actually housing these temple prostitutes when they get pregnant because they're getting thrown out of their trade and they didn't have a way to support themselves. They had to wait until they got rid of the baby. So the Christians would actually house these young ladies and then they would start developing trust relationship. And then we'd tell them, you know, we'll take care of your child after you deliver. You don't have to kill the baby. And they were winning the prostitutes to Jesus Christ because of their service of love. So they were finding what was happening in the community around them. What was the pressure and pain points? How could Christianity move in without an agenda and, and just simply show real genuine love and develop relationships? 
So I would say every church should also be considering what are the pre-evangelism activities that we should do that authenticate our motives in our community. That even if you never come to our church, we still care. Right. Even if you never become a Christian, we'll still be here for you. So every church needs to do that, I believe, also to build the reputation of the church in their local community so that lost people in the community would say, look, I don't, I don't bother Jesus stuff, but I know that those people are real. We should at least be shooting for that. So I would say pre-evangelism activity as a missional strategy is extremely important in, in missional evangelism. Amen. Well, you know, for the listeners who are part of Grace Baptist Church uh, and, and perhaps some pastors who will be listening, we can't take our eyes off. We can't allow ourselves to be distracted from the goal of declaring the good news of Jesus Christ to people who haven't heard. And I know there's enough to keep me busy as a pastor, just dealing with the people who are already in the family of God. And uh, so whether we follow this strategy, that strategy, or every, every strategy, uh, if we wake every day uh, with a sincere burden and a willingness to be a witness, uh, asking God to, to give us opportunities and if we follow some skillful methods like you've de- declared and, and described here, um, there's just no way that God's going to step back and say, no, I'm not helping you. You know, I mean, this is his heart. Yeah. The, the, the mission of the church is the great commission. And um, so thank you so much. You're I have welcome. enjoyed these interactions and hopefully, uh, you know, we will get, get better at being skillful uh, in following the principles that are, Uh, laid out in the scriptures and the examples that are being set forth by people who are doing this well. And uh, we can reach new people with the gospel. Uh, It is amazing to me how many times I do stuff. And Patrick has spoken to me about this recently. I do stuff that just feels like it just flops and I'm over here and I'm working, working, working and like, Lord bless this, you know, and it just goes. And then over here, something blooms, you know, and, uh, and it's not just evangelism. There's just a lot of things that way. Um, and certainly the scriptures say that, you know, the, those who are stewards, God's requirement of us is that we be found faithful. And uh, I don't want to ever use that as an excuse for doing a job poorly. Uh, but even when it doesn't feel like it's working, I believe we should always continue to push ahead and uh, continue to work each day for the glory of God to get the gospel to people who haven't heard in whatever ways we can get it out there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, asking me to be a part. And uh, obviously, I mean, evangelism is my, it's my, it's my passion. It's why I do what I do. And uh, it's my most important metric for the church. And uh, that's the one that I keep my eye on the most that if are people crossing the line of faith and are they following that decision with believers baptism and connected into the local churches. I mean, that's for me, that's my passion. And uh, if, if our people want to come to the dream conference, there's a website, right? What's don't you have a website for that particular conference? Yeah. It's all one word, the dream church And just in case you don't really know, or you stumble or you mess it up somewhere, just Google dream church right. conference. You know, you'll, you'll find it. It's right out there. We're about to host the uh, preaching conference. Uh, That's coming up in October. We do that as an annual conference, uh, talking about how to preach in such a way that lost people can make a decision and have clear steps of how to do that and that and so on and so forth. But uh, we're doing that in October and then we'll have the dream conference. We always do it the first uh, Thursday and Friday of March. And so last year we just got under the radar of COVID. <laughs> we got the dream conference done and literally we're driving back hearing on the radio. It's like, Oh, the, there's something called COVID. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> yeah. so I'm glad we were able to get that accomplished this last year we got, and I'm hoping by March of 2021, uh, that'll be behind us and we'll be ready to move back into full gear. That's my prayer. And hopefully Patrick will have to attend via Zoom from the Gambia. That's what our hope is. Uh, that would be great. 
Thanks for listening to Grace or Grit. Thank you, Pastor Brian and Patrick, for spending time with me today. I pray for God's richest blessings on you both and on your ministries. May God also bless our listeners in this podcast. If, as a listener, you are blessed by this episode, let me encourage you to listen to some of the previous episodes, if you haven't done so already, and share this podcast with others. And let's all get excited, sincerely, about the opportunity, not, re- not just responsibility, but the opportunity to share the good news of God's saving grace. And let's be faithful evangelists, carrying the good news for the glory of God and for the expansion of his kingdom. Amen.